2: Right, let's go. Right, 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 let's go. It's TF3 on The Weekend Review, and this week we are reviewing The Weekend. What a change. Chris Hennage, welcome. All right. And of course, Nico Morales. How you doing? I'm just thinking, I mean, there's, there's no one else on this podcast, guys. Uh, when was the last time we heard Dave?
3: I heard he's off in uh, in in foreign countries doing foreign things. So all the best.
2: Oh, I heard he was in London, but you've heard differently to me. Um, and then of course, yeah. yeah. Um, and then of course, uh, there's midway through the podcast we're going to hear from Adam Boltwood, who's going to be talking about La Liga and everything that's going on in Spain right now after what was. Um, it's, it's difficult to describe it. I think it's it's, um, it's certainly going to be a historic weekend and something which uh, will be spoken about for a very long time in a political and also footballing sense after everything that's happened uh, in Spain and Catalonia over the weekend. Uh, let's get down to the Premier League, though, because there are some fantastic results from the weekend which set up for some great analysis. Nico, we might as well start with you. Uh, the Chelsea fans will be furious because a lot of people tweet saying we never talk about Chelsea. Um, we are going to talk about Chelsea now. Probably in a a relatively positive light Because actually, Nico uh, As weirdly as this will sound This was a great advert for the Premier League Between Chelsea and Man City At Stamford Bridge Where Man City got the win
3: yeah, I think I, I said that before, uh, sort of in the in the preview, and I was, as a Manchester City fan, I was very nervous as to the outcome, because we know how, how good Chelsea uh, can be, uh, specifically in, in midweek against Atletico Madrid, which obviously are one of the best teams in Europe. They were fantastic. Uh, they used um, a central midfield of Conte, of Bakayoko, and Cesc Fabregas to shut them down, and, and it was really effective. So um, that, in sort of conjunction with the movement of Alvar- Alvaro Murata, I thought was going to be really dangerous. Especially if they were isolated against Manchester City's defenders, but City came through in this one using some really, uh, some really, I guess, intuitive tactical concepts. Um, I've talked a little bit about. Fabian Delph sort of coming inside and acting as a central midfielder that sort of in conjunction with Kyle Walker doing that so that they occupied uh, the midfield in a way to take uh, sort of the spotlight, the spotlight against or away from David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne really allowed city to enact their possession actions without really being exposed in possession as maybe Chelsea would like to have done hitting them on on the counterattack and stuff like that. But it was a, it was a really good move from Guardiola. um, And I think, I, I struggled to find a Manchester City player that didn't do their job uh, in in an excellent fashion, specifically Raheem Sterling and, and Leroy Sané. So I was really impressed.
2: Some people obviously saying that this is Man City's best game under Pep Guardiola.
3: I would I would I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Although the the level of opposition obviously wasn't there against Shakhtar, I was really impressed with how the players enacted a similar. Um, kind of game plan against Shakhtar Donetsk, and they were they were a really good team. Obviously, um, in Guardiola's own words, they they beat uh, one of the best teams in Europe, Napoli, uh, playing their own game, and they really took the the game to Manchester City. It was a compact game filled with uh, sort of playing football in the center of the park. Um, so I think it's one of our better games. I'm glad to see that because I think the 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 thing that Manchester City will struggle with and have struggled with in past seasons is the games against the bigger sides i think against manuel pellegrini in his final season um we had one of the worst records against the top six and so that was a real uh point of you know discomfort for manchester city and that didn't really change last year it was easy to sort of break us down and hit us hit us on the counter because of the lack of athleticism that we had on the wings but now even with benjamin benjamin mendy out we uh we seem to have cope with that with with Fabian Delph and the things that both him and Kyle Walker have been able to do. I know people haven't necessarily been, been as impressed with Kyle Walker as maybe Mendy uh, or other players within the side, but I think he's done excellently to, to both keep the width and then perform his defensive duties and then obviously in this game not as much as Fabian Delph, but coming inside so that to take away some of the the spotlight away from De Bruyne and Silva which was obviously key because the more that you get David De Bru- uh, Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva on the ball the, the more success that you have in, in attack and, and getting the balls to their, those forward players.
2: Uh, Chris it certainly is interesting to see uh, what's going on at Chelsea as well we've seen some great results for them recently and arguably um, they they were sort of the, well, not, not the form team on this one, but you, you would have thought that the way that they set up would have been perfect to catch City out. Pep hasn't won against uh, Chelsea in all of his attempts, and it didn't, you know, it, it, it looked like this was going to be the most equal of the games, and it was narrow. So it's not necessarily the season-crushing uh, defeat, maybe, that um, some people have billed it as but is there is there reason for Chelsea fans to sort of think of some sort of reform here? Under Conte, anything that they could change that would make a big difference? I
4: think, I think from a uh, from a defensive standpoint, they managed to stifle City a, a good amount, and it took that moment of brilliance from De Bruyne to settle things. The concern I have is that I don't think they really pushed um, Man City from an attacking sense, and I do think they look they looked a little bit. Uh, tired and and one of the things that, that you and I have discussed before and, and came up in in the Conte documentary that that you did was he's he's not the greatest at. Uh, um, schedule management I was going to say game management but actually he's quite pragmatic in terms of putting his side together but when it comes to balancing competitions he does struggle and he does keep his foot on the pedal um you look at the the hundred point season where the the way in which he used Vidal even though Vidal was was almost on, on one leg pretty much that that to me highlights the fact that again yes he has a I mean, he doesn't have the deepest of squads. He, he's obviously having to rely on Christensen, who I think actually is, is doing fairly well. Massander's coming in and things like that. And, and there are possibly rivals he has with deeper squads. But I think he needs to be a little bit uh, smarter with it in in, in some avenues. Um, you could say that, again, it's it's perfectly... The the Atletico game was perfectly handled, but it left them so, I thought, low on energy for the City game that, again, maybe changes need to be made there. There's an element of hindsight with it all, of course. But I think if he's going to do anything notable this season, he's going to have to, to learn that balance a little bit more. And it's it's something that, that hasn't really presented itself in him previously. So I'm a little bit concerned if it will do so now all of a sudden.
2: There are obviously a lot of comments in midweek about Conte's midweek comments on the radio in Italy, where he was talking about, uh, you know, at some point returning uh, it's, it's obviously it's, it's almost impossible, in fact, to, to see what kind of effect that's going to have on the players. Um, some people maybe knew that Conte in the short term uh, was going to be that manager uh, where he would always leave after three years. But it, it sort of does set up a narrative at odds with what players like Morata said, Chris, who said, I came to Chelsea for one reason, the manager, and th- that meaning that they were only the, cl- the only club that really wanted
4: yeah and I mean even then you know if if reports be to leave Lukaku was um, was their first choice so even even then raw wasn't anybody's first choice, which is quite harsh on him because I think he's a good player. Um, the, the January could be interesting for them because it presents a chance to buy people the The difficulty or the caveat with that is prices are often higher and it's very rare that a, a player comes in and is successful after a, a January like that. Um. So it, I see why some people are painting this as the beginning of the end for Conte because he, I think he said he doesn't want to stay a long time and Chelsea are notorious for the short lifespan of their coach. Um. I think even if he went tomorrow, you could say there was a, a hefty degree of success because he brought them a league title. So I think this is maybe a chance for Chelsea to, to just zoom out slightly and say okay well what do we want to do we have this very good uh youth production line in terms of Masander and christiansen and they're coming through now and maybe starting to do something do we now want to try and install someone with with slightly more long term to them someone in that that mold of guardiola who will stay for three or four years
2: well who who, who is that
4: <laughs> there, there's the difficulty if i'm honest um i i don't know who that person is i um, maybe you take a a punt on someone slightly younger, and you go after someone like Nagelsmann. Um, maybe it's someone like Tuchel. I mean, it's a lot of German names I appreciate floating around there, but I I don't think there's a, a wealth of candidates presenting themselves uh, to my mind instantly, if I'm honest.
3: I think also if I can just add to the to the points about content, is maybe at the same time, you know, we look to managers to accentuate the best qualities of the players that they have. And his, and in his first season he did that, you know, we look at how the system wasn't entirely based around the brilliance of Aiden Hazard, but Um, a lot of it was you know a lot of it depended on sort of his dribbling brilliance and a lot of the things that he was able to do on the ball and he is a magnificent player in that regard but at the same time uh, in the same way that sort of Jose Mourinho was able to completely nullify that by man marking him. I think Ty Guardiola did the same by playing a, a really high and disciplined line. I mean, I, I don't have the specific number, but the amount of times uh, Hazard was was marked off sides was, was pretty incredible and obviously showing that that it was a fallacy within his game. And, and for a player that talks about uh, in interviews a lot about how he wants to be in Ballon d'Or contention and up there with the Ronaldos and the Messis and the Neymars of the world, he has done little to elevate his game from a point of, you know, just being a brilliant dribbler. And if there isn't a coach like Conte or if there is a time in Conte's career where people sort of figure that out and find ways to cope with it, at least at the highest level, not every game's going to be like that. Then it's difficult to imagine that he'll ever reach that height and not at some point stagnate considering that, you know, he hasn't, like I said, he hasn't progressed much since that. So he's a brilliant player, but I'd like to see a little bit more evolution because then he obviously would be even better than he is now if he had some better off-ball movement. Mm.
2: It is. I mean, it's certainly a tricky one because Chelsea, uh, I mean, Chelsea have actually, considering some of the situations they've found themselves in, relatively thrived under the fact they've changed so many managers, but then that was maybe because they started with a manager which set them up so well for so long. You could argue... Conte is a similar manager Um, although I mean obviously with everything that's going on at Juventus more recently maybe you'd say they they need that sort of better running there's I mean you can play it off a lot of ways can't you Chris but I think ultimately in recent years we've seen a lot of positivity for Chelsea and reasons to be positive they're you know they're not they're not necessarily in the same echelons as a PSG or a Barcelona spending wise anymore are they
4: no, I don't think they are. I think, I think perhaps Abramovich has realised that, that that's not sustainable for them. Um, he well, did. Also, but
2: he was also somewhat forced to back away from that, wasn't he? Because they were getting a lot of heat in Europe, I think, for quite a while. I think a lot of people were trying to shine a light on the likes of Chelsea and say, they're spending a lot, look at them. Yeah, that's that's very true, and I think nobody
4: predicted the uh, you know uh, tidal wave of spending that was was going to come with the likes of PSG, um, and and I mean look even Man United. you know I mean Man City are, are arguably the, the the lesser of those three. I think De Bruyne is still their record transfer at fifty five or sixty million uh, pounds. So yeah, he's had to change. I think he, he changed. You're right, partly from. Uh, social pressure to do so. I do think, at the same time, he realised there were more, uh, there were smarter ways, if you will, to conduct business, and I think you see that manifest in the lone army that we talk about, and that I've referenced already on on the pod that. The Often, I talked to, to Jake Cohn about this, who was a Chelsea fan, so maybe not the most objective of sources, but I think he talks a lot of sense. Um, you look at the, I believe it's amortization, am I, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, that is often a way to view players uh, best in terms of, of economics and financials. And for Chelsea, their approach has, has changed drastically in so much as they will still spend money, they will still buy someone like Morata, who is ready-made, but I think for them increasingly they're hoping that they can build the next Marat whether it's Tammy Abraham or things like that um, but the, the caveat to that is they're caught in a difficult predicament whereby guys like Nathaniel Shalaba don't want to wait around forever they don't want to, to sit and hope that they get that chance when they're ready they want to take it now so, well, Solanke I think, or Solanke um, or arguably someone like Daniel Sturridge a few years ago yeah I think Solanke and, and Sturridge are, are, are very good examples as well and, and that's that's where I think Chelsea are very much at a crossroads because if you look at those last few managers, the lifespan for the most part has been largely in the same ballpark and their transfer strategy is changing whereby they want to have more long-termism towards it. They want to actually take that academy that's won, I think, a number of youth, club, youth cups um, in the last few years. And actually see it produce something in the first team, because as it stands, John Terry is the only uh, alumni, I think, to have
2: any noticeable contribution. And that was a long time ago. Is it, uh, and this is quite an interesting question for you as well, Nico, is it partly profile that's created a bit of a problem for the likes of Chelsea and maybe even Man City? Because there are other teams with a lot of money backing them. Arguably, Newcastle United uh, have had a multi-billionaire this weekend, I think her name's Amanda, um, Chris, Amanda, I don't know. Um, Her name is Amanda, let's put it that way. Um, And uh, she's a multi-billionaire coming in at Newcastle this weekend and looking uh, maybe at Liverpool, uh, maybe at Newcastle. Um, And you'd argue that the profile of someone like Newcastle United, they'd almost be very astute to look at some of the mistakes that other teams have made. Um, In basically showing how much money they have after a takeover, you know, PSG and the Qataris, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Whereas other teams like Red Bull, like uh, RB Leipzig, um, owned by Red Bull, other um, smaller investments have also managed to bring through youth and, you know, buy decent players for a a very reasonable price. Arguably over the weekend, we saw someone like Marino for Newcastle United. Um, just a you know, just twelve million, to maybe even fourteen million, whatever, whatever you want to say, the spend is on him, and he's a, a player of quality that you could see someone like Man City buying, someone like Liverpool buying, but for some reason, the, the profile wasn't there. The difficulty yeah.
4: is though, the, those the clubs and
2: players we talk about, like Newcastle and Moreno, Newcastle can
4: afford to take the risk. Um, no I'm not talking financially here I'm
2: talking from a performance standpoint so yeah, but, 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 for okay, me. but to counter that Chris just, just very quickly uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is arguably a big risk for Liverpool is arguably a big risk for Liverpool keeping Sturridge and not investing in a new striker is obviously, arguably a big risk for Liverpool now I understand Liverpool are not of the same level of a Barcelona Manchester United Chelsea but you could also say I don't know there, there are signings maybe a Rudiger Maybe um, even a few years ago, maybe someone like an Azbillacueta were players who you couldn't have exactly banked on them being Chelsea legends or the player they they turned out to be. So it's not as if Mm -hmm. there isn't this margin there, because I I do think profile is something to do with it, the club in itself. PSG from now on will, will struggle to spend 12 million on a player. Do you understand what I mean by that?
4: Yeah, yeah, because the clubs
2: they're bidding with will will not want to accept that amount. I think that's that's then, a fair why, one. You why know? why why will Juventus and Bayern Munich do a deal between each other? Maybe because they have good relations. But why will those two deal do a deal with each other? Arguably high-profile clubs, but not in a financial sense. We both know, though, they make a lot of money. Why hmm. will neither of those end up paying massive fees for a Matuidi or a Kingsley Coman or a, you know what I'm getting at?
3: From what I understand with those clubs, um, th- that it maybe is the difference to the relation of, of English Premier League clubs. There's there's a lot of factors into it. Obviously, people know that um, Premier League clubs are willing to spend a lot more because they have a lot more available money because of the TV revenue. But as you said, Bayern Munich is a cash-rich club. They don't uh, receive the majority of their funds from an investor or someone that's uh, supplying the money. They make the majority of their own money, and they have a lot of it. Um, but I think from what I've heard, behind the scenes is that they identify their transfer targets very early and then they start talking about talking to the club about said player far 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 be- before we hear it and more often than not there are there are deals that you know never happen that that were in the works for a long time that we never hear about and I think it's sort of that it's a conjunction of, of outside factors, but it's sort of the, the preparedness that those clubs need to have. As I've spoken about with Bayern Munich, they want to be among the European elite, and but they cannot spend like the European elite. And so they... They, they broker these deals like the Hamas deal that we see. You know, it's a two-year loan. It's kind of a weird deal for a club like that to to have, especially for a, cl- a player of that quality. But they manage to get these deals um, because they're doing things in ways to try to keep up with the people that are spending a lot more than they are, but so they then, do Nico, it in different ways.
2: So then, Nico, bigger question here. And I, get, I understand we're completely off the topic of how brilliant Man City and Chelsea are, but… <laughs> Um, why not take the 35 million that Liverpool spent on Alex Oxley Chamberlain? Uh, someone will bring me up on that. Maybe it's 40 million, whatever. And spend that on your backroom staff and scouting and find yourselves some players of that quality. Because arguably, if you spent that money on scouting, you would come up with mm-hmm. three, maybe four people. I mean, I'm doing it on. Um, you know, uh, ultimate team right now. I'm just taking my time. You know, I'm not going out there yeah. and spending, you know, 40 million coins on a, on a, um, a, a Sane. You know, I'm, I'm going out there and I'm spending 8 million on a, you know, an Emre Chan or a, 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 a Castro from, uh, Dortmund. Well, I think with that, I think with that,
3: it, it's. I overspent, on like I said.
2: I overspent, I admit. <laughs> all right. You, you overspent and on Castro. It was poor it was scouts. Um,
3: it was. But uh, I think with that, like the, like I said, there's a lot of different factors that go into these sort of things. But part of it is cultural, you know, um, from people that, that have spoke to not me. Not liking within, saving
2: money? what Not liking being good with money?
3: Well, well so, for example, there's a, there's a story of uh, someone that I knew that worked sort of in one of the lower leagues in Europe, and I, I believe in Ukraine. They were in the second, possibly even third division. And they had a player that was doing exceptionally well. Um, but they didn't want on their... On their books necessarily. And so there was a, there was a, they, they didn't want him on their books, but he was doing well. And so they kind of just kept playing him even though he didn't fit into the system. And this is a, you know, th- one of the directors said that they kept playing him because they knew some dumb English club was going to come along and overpay for him. And that's right. exactly what happened. And so it, I think it's like we've mentioned with Klopp. We see what he's doing at Liverpool where he's coaching through some of his problems. And I think it's really with the with the extreme amount of money. We, and we talk about PSG spending an enormous amount of money. But as a league, I think with the extreme amount of money that we see going to the Premier League through TV deals and all these commercial deals and everything else. A lot of this stuff is poorly run and could be run a lot better. And other clubs in Europe, like Bayern Munich, like teams in Germany, like teams in Spain even, are running their club as fiscally responsible as they can because they cannot keep up in the same way and in the same fashion that teams in the Premier League or team even teams in England do. Because we we all know, I, I think the championship is probably the most known lesser league in Europe, as opposed to, you know, league league or, or, or Serie B or something like that. It has a prestige because of the amount of money that England has. And so you see a lot of these clubs run poorly from a financial standpoint because you have people within these clubs that are making this, these decisions. They're not making them from a point of, of professionalism. They're not taking in a, a variety of, of different viewpoints on different financial decisions or decisions that will affect the club in a major way to, financially they're, they're making them and they're in those positions possibly underqualified so i think that's part of the reason um and, and there are other factors that go into it but i think yeah. that, that that's really the main one
2: it's, i mean it's a good explanation um chris are you just thinking of which ukrainian player it was now excellent chris um anyway i uh, am indeed I'm, okay. I'm definitely gonna ask him about that when we're finished yeah um i i mean it's not mcturian let's put it that way and it it, it can't be Konoplyanka. Um, and I'm out so <laughs> that's as far as I go um, it was definitely a shacked up. it was, wait it was, or was it who's the guy who went to China I understand that's a very Pata? broad question
3: wait, who? Alexander Pata?
2: no, 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 He's uh, he uh, he didn't play for a Ukrainian club, that's silly um, it was who was the guy who Liverpool uh, bid for
3: The winger. What's his name? Markovic?
2: It's kind of... No, kind of. it was kind of a winger. It, stop trying to throw me off the scent here, uh,
3: No, he's... This is some a, great podcasting.
2: This is great podcasting. I guess long at home. Uh, he went to China. Liverpool bid a lot of money for him, but then China outbid. And I think he was... Oh, uh, uh, Alex, the Teixeira. Alex Teixeira. Alex Teixeira. Alex Teixeira. Yeah. Teixeira would have been a great signing. We all know it. Yeah. Where is Alex Teixeira now? Anyway, uh... Ultimately, uh, Man City won that one, uh, Pep somewhat vindicated in the way that he's approaching things right now. Um, and again, I'll reiterate a lot of people saying it was um, the best performance they've seen from Man City in quite a while. Um, and even if it wasn't, as Nico broke down, there is still something to take from that. Uh, you can join David over on his own channel uh, for the detailed analysis of Manchester United over the weekend. I think he does his three talking points on a Monday, but uh, Chris... Just to go over it, uh, Juan Mata played his 200th, 200th game for Manchester United. Uh, he might have played his 200th game, sorry, not for Manchester United, in the Premier League. Um, and Fellaini scored twice, Lukaku capped it off. Uh, Crystal Palace are yet to still score in any play in the league. Yeah,
4: um, match the today did a little uh, thing towards the end there of teams that have gone seven games and had one point or less. Um, amazingly not all of them went down so who if you're a Crystal Palace fan uh, I th- which ones didn't go down or which ones I know Sunderland didn't go down good question Um, I'm trying to think who, who were the other teams Uh, I know Sheffield Wednesday did um, I'm trying to think of other ones but yeah there Was were, there, there? The, I would have thought Derby would be in there but yeah I could be I could be totally wrong, um, but yeah, it's it's not looking good for Palace. I mean, I saw a quote from Hodgson just today. In fact, that uh, you know he thinks they're going to have to run their, their bollocks off, um, and I'm, I'm quoting him there, I believe. So I don't disagree. Having watched the game, there were certainly instances of just pure work ethic being the issue, um, which you know that's that's a concern this early in the season. Uh, especially when it's folk like Andros Townsend, because that's something I just always assume as a given with him that he'll not stop running until the whistle goes. Um, it's it's hard not to feel like maybe this is another one of those cases, a bit a bit like Aston Villa. I don't think they'll be as bad as Aston Villa, where it's it's the build-up of a few years that have pushed them towards this precipice without them realizing, in so much as it's been a lot of short-termism with. Pulis with Allardyce etc etc and then this massive shift to um to the ball that isn't planned that isn't prepared and now they're shifting back the other way so players that have spent all summer thinking okay we're going to have a bit more of the ball this is going to be fun are now chasing and running around you know like like they were before and I don't know they just look so sort of bereft of anything um even attacking intent, I know they didn't have a striker or a recognized striker on the field, but it doesn't explain
2: not, you know, at least forging some kind of opportunities. It is unusual, isn't it? Because it almost looks as if, I mean, I suppose this really shows the, the margins between the very top level and sort of the the next levels down, which I'm not talking about the championship or even league two or league one at that point. Although you know, I, I imagine some people think they can play in those leagues, even though they can't. Uh, what I'm saying here, Nico, is, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of believe... There is still some element of synergy even without coaching uh, between players. You know, there are still what some people believe to be innate talents within players finding space. You know, a player that can really take it to the opposition, if you will. And that, arguably, there is a mixture here of you know a lack of maybe a cohesive idea. Um, going forward at least because I understand what Roy Hodgson's trying to work on defensively and also the fact that the players look somewhat confused days not not even able to kind of play rudimental football which a lot of people um, almost take for granted in the Premier League.
3: Yeah, certainly. And I think you, you're, you're completely right in the sense that the, the coach is very important and is specifically implementing those ideas. But it's often we speak
2: so casually about those. You, you get what I'm getting at here. It's, we speak so casually certainly. about, well, they passed it around. And because it looks so effortless for a lot of those top, top level teams, we almost take for granted that any side could, uh, you know, when just given the ball, pass it around.
3: Yeah, certainly. And I think each manager demands different things of their players. And, um, you know, you've, you've, uh, as sure as I've heard, um, players talking about, oh well, the manager came in and taught us how to defend. I mean, and I don't think that's necessarily true. Those players probably no knew how. Players to
2: players said that, of course. <laughs>
3: um, those 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 professional players definitely knew how to defend up until that point in their career. They hadn't, they wouldn't have gone gotten to the to the stage in their career that they have um, without knowing how to defend. But different coaches ask of different things, and like you said, these players and these people make things look so casual that we imagine it's much. Easier than it actually is. When you know we we see a complex idea like the one that Jose Mourinho has, or that Pep Guardiola has, or that Klopp has, you know we imagine that there's so little that goes it goes into it. But it, it, all of this stuff happens. It goes from their brain to the training pitch, and then incorporating those ideas without necessarily even words being said. It's about implementing tactical ideas in the way that players should play through without using words. Almost it, it's it. That's why football is so beautiful because you can have 20 or 11 people on the field perpetuating one idea without anyone saying anything. And the, it, the 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 ball is almost language. And so that's why it's such a cool thing, but I think to speak to the Crystal Palace point, I think though I don't necessarily believe in his ability to bring Palace back from the brink. I think they'll be relegated. I think they'll have a really bad season. Great. I think to 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 talk about Uh, Roy Hodgson and and maybe his management and the team's style of play in such a negative way after they faced the two teams that are by far and away, both underlying and, and, you know, base numbers um, the best two teams in the league is difficult you know they played us and then they played manchester united and it didn't go well either way and that's by design from two excellent teams so i'm willing to give him a little bit more time before i completely uh dole out my judgment on his style of management but like i said before i don't think that it will necessarily prevail
2: okay interesting um obviously there's much more like i say over on snapman dave's channel um so that and it will be interesting if you're a manchester united fan or even a fan of a rival team um Chris, let's move on to, I'm trying, I'm trying to pick a, uh, because there are so many good games from this weekend, but as Bolt was not here, we must cover Spurs. Um, the cliche of Harry Kane in uh, September uh, comes alive again. Uh, we spoke on the preview podcast a little bit about the world-class qualities of Kane. Uh, and again, he showed those on the weekend scoring in the ninth and 24th minute um, and having a man of the match performance again. Uh, he didn't get his hat trick in this one. Subbed off very late, but they gave him as many opportunities as possible going into the international break. Um, a, just another great performance, but against the Huddersfield Town, that again, like we said on this podcast, may run out of legs at some point. Yeah, I've noticed actually that's a theme. The, the king gets uh,
4: substituted within like the last five, ten minutes. Um, usually, it's happened a few times where he's been on two goals as well. So. I can uh, can only imagine how he feels about that. I think as much as as Spurs were were you know scintillating an attack, I think this has been coming for for Huddersfield. I think they've played teams that maybe hadn't found the precision in their in their attacking play yet. Um, and you know, <laughs> without wishing to to hammer Liverpool too much, when your style is derived slightly or shared with the ethos of Klopp, there's going to be defensive spaces that open up, and I think that's been. And coming for Huddersfield you've got to remember the last season they made it into the playoffs with a negative goal difference um, after absolutely capitulating towards the back end of the season so I'm not surprised that they've they've been beaten sort of this comprehensively and and at the same time I think there'll be periods during the season where they score two or three or maybe even four but also concede three or four because I think that's the sort of coin toss that David
2: Wagner is at the minute. With his style of play and the way that he wants them to to perform. And the way that I put it in pre-season, Chris, and maybe I'm sort of going backwards here, but if if Huddersfield expect that, then this is no reason for their heads to go down after a result like this. Do do you know what I mean? If you expect that there are going to be some fantastic teams that do manage to pick you apart, then that's great. Uh, But that's also trusting then that the faith doesn't go in Wagner and that the players don't necessarily... Uh, have their own heads go down by being, basically proving that you, you're not of that very elite level in the Premier League. It,
4: it's it's an interesting one because it reminds me slightly of Bournemouth when they first came up. Um, they had a, a tough adjustment period in the first half of the season and then, from what I can remember, seemed to pick up points in the second half and, and survive quite comfortably. I think Huddersfield had a great start. Um, and there's certainly a contrast in school of thought that says actually it's much better to, to lose 2-1 and be defensive than 4-0 and be open and, and try and take the game to them. And, and that game management, especially for promoter teams, is important. I think at the other end of the scale, you have Brighton, who offer next to nothing in the final third and still are beaten quite comfortably. And it's so OK, would you rather be a Huddersfield or a Brighton fan, assuming you both
2: have the same number of points? And you know, requisite geography. Because being a a Huddersfield fan in Brighton must be terrible, and being a Brighton fan in Huddersfield (laughs) must also be awful. It's, um... I think there's part of me that
4: feels like momentum is important, though, in terms of if you're beaten 3 or 4 nil, it can be quite demoralising. And I feel like you need to to keep that up. So I'm curious to see how... But I would
2: contend that. Loss is a loss is a loss, maybe, though,
3: Chris. Chris, I'm sorry, did you you say that... um, you know, you thought that it would—it's it, better to uh, lose two one and be defensive, or two nil and be defensive, rather than I, get smashed I think, 4-0. I, I
2: don't—I don't think he's saying that with any element of certainty. not that, no, no, not that, I'm, not that
3: I'm like going to go after that point. I just wanted to to ask that. I think it's,
2: it's been uh, only two weeks, and already he's going after me. <laughs> <laughs>
4: it's
3: dangerous territory for you to My, my to point with my point with with Tottenham oh, please, and the Sheffield game. Fine. No, I'll, I'll leave that alone. Now go on. My my point with this game would be, I think, and I think the the comparison to Bournemouth is is a really good one because they clearly intend to play football. And I think that's the idea is that they don't want to sit back and, and, you know, the the first game of the season for Manchester City was Brighton. And they sat in their own 18 yard box and and defended pretty much the entire game. And they lost, I I forget what the score was, 1-0 or 2-0 or whatever it was. And I think in the minds of an Eddie Howe or Devin Wagner, it's much better to leave the spaces open, take the game, uh, take the game to the opposition, be, have it be some form of a contest, even though obviously it ended 4-0, and play them sort of in a more dynamic football sense than to just sit back and and sort of accept your fate. And yeah, you might ask more uh, of a better team uh, by sitting back and being defensive and asking you to break them down. But I think in some sense it makes your players better against the teams that are more similar in quality by no. taking the game in, by playing football with – with you know some of these better teams so okay. I, I can appreciate that you know that there's a there's an idea that you know you might want to sit in and be defensive and you might get results from that but I it's, can also appreciate the fact that they want to play football against some of the better sides
2: it's that swagger and that confidence maybe which which takes you into bigger games over the next six games they'll play uh, Liverpool Manchester United and Man City but they will also on the flip side of that play Bournemouth uh, West Brom and, of course, Swansea. Um, So, you know, we really will see the full range here for Huddersfield and maybe a good cross-section of how we can expect um, their season to shape up. Moving on, guys. Uh, West Ham finally... Not a fight. Chris, uh, West Ham got a win. Uh, Looking at West Ham uh, right now, there's certainly something uh, going on there. Uh, people castigated us for not necessarily being confident in village and his men and there's been a lot of uh, controversy this week on West Ham Twitter over whether Noble is actually good enough to play in the team anymore but they got away from a Swansea side uh, with a 1-0 win Um, you said Swansea weren't all that good though
4: yeah I I should perhaps clarify that they weren't good in attack that was the issue I had with them um, they, for the for the most part, you know, they were fairly solid in defence. I mean, the goal they actually conceded, I thought, was was pretty terrible. Um, yeah. from a defensive standpoint, that was, I think, the one moment they switched off. Um, but you're looking at the attack, and and I think you're looking at the way the midfield's constructed as well. And, and you're not really seeing um, a team that I think is balanced enough, it, it seems like its first instinct is to defend and you know you look at their summer window and they buy two central midfielders and I'm not entirely sure why, I feel like Rocky Messer makes sense because you're upgrading Leon Britain, but then to go after Klukas and Sanchez that's that's a very crowded area for them now and I don't know if they have the the ability to transition from midfield to attack very easily Um, the likes of Luciano Narsing aren't getting in the team Um, Montero obviously left in the summer so I'm not too sure what Swansea are trying to do that's the problem
2: yeah it certainly makes it more difficult Uh, and I think Swansea obviously in their own issues right now see 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 maybe some of the the positives of having just a, a side that can absolutely batter another team Um, or at least try to, uh, West Ham ultimately breaking through there. Um, Let's take a quick break now uh, from the analysis of the weekend and go here from Adam Boltwood uh, and his section now. We'll be back in just a little while talking about the Premier League and finishing up those results there, bringing you some other news from across the continent and indeed uh, around the world. This is TF3.
1: Okay, so part two of the podcast, me, Adam Boltwood. We're here once again with Colin Miller, editor for Football Espana. Colin, thanks so much for joining us again on The Front Free. Oh, it's perfect to be back on, Thanks so much for having me. Colin, it's a pleasure to have you back on. We're here, of course, to talk the events in Catalonia this weekend where we saw politics and sport collide in a big way in Spain. Of course, the region held its independence referendum in defiance of the Spanish government on Sunday in essence resulting in a constitutional crisis and a chaotic weekend in Barcelona. What exactly happened in the city on the weekend, Colin?
0: Well, Sunday
1: was the day of, of the referendum.
0: Um, it was essentially Catalonia, the northeastern uh, region of Spain. Um, it was the, the referendum was being held for the citizens to decide whether they wanted to the vote to remain as part of Spain or to become an independent state themselves. Now, um, tensions had been building over this um, for some weeks, especially as the Spanish government and the constitutional court. Well, they both insisted that, that the vote was illegal. Um, you know, they, they referred to the country's constitution, which had been drawn up in 1978. It was after the sort of downfall and death of Franco and it explicitly stated that Spain could not be broken up. So um, that led to the situation with the Catalan parliament, um, sort of just pushed ahead with this referendum. They insisted the region must be allowed to have its own voice, you know, people must be allowed to have their own say, and what then happened was that the Spanish Civil Guard was then sent into Catalonia, and uh, police forces were sent in to primarily to destroy ballots, to close polling stations, and pretty much to clamp down on this illegal vote, as it were. Um, so Sunday was the day itself, and really from quite early on, there was a lot of videos and pictures emerging over social media which showed very sort of heavily armed Spanish police kicking would-be voters. They were hitting them with batons and pulling women out of polling stations by their hair. Um, Really horrific and and quite sort of violent images, it has to be said. a lot a lot of ones as well, people covered in blood haven't been having been hit by, by these officers. And the Catalan government um actually said at the end of the day on Sunday night that away 150 people had been taken into hospital as a result of these as these clashes, as it were, um, as it was being reported. And he also saw some very strange scenes where firefighters were actually defending uh, civilians from the police forces and also other Photos which seem to show the Spanish police ca- clashing with the uh, local Catalan police. Uh, it was all very strange and it was all very dramatic. Um, it, it also, you know, this is sort of heightened feelings of nationalisation right across Spain. Um, there's a lot of ha- rallies that we held before and against the vote. So this has been, whilst obviously it, 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 it's directly affecting Catalonia, it's something that's, that's, really been, that's really been massive news across Spain, for obvious reasons, um, for the past weeks. You've got quite a lot of heightened tensions. And then in the midst of all this on Sunday afternoon, Barcelona um, had a scheduled home clash with Las Palmas, which, of course, we all know um, led to a very unique situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, you say it there a unique situation is the is the phrase you, you speak of all these shocking images and and quite horrifying scenes that we we saw on the news over here, and yet as you say, the match in the end did go ahead with that palace, but there seems to be a lot of confusion in the lead up as to whether it was actually going to take place. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, the game itself it was due to start at a quarter past four uh, in lo- local time. And there had been some sort of murmurings all week in the press that the game might not go ahead because of the referendum. Um, but these, but a few days in advance of the match, that had seemed to have all quietened down. Um, the, the Catalan police force, the Mossos de Squadra, um, they insisted that, the, we have the numbers to deal with. It Security issues that are gonna emerge, there's gonna be no threat, there's gonna be no threat of violence, and people who are going to the game will be safe. Uh so that has sort of seemed to quell that down. But then on the day itself, uh, things started to unravel. Um the first thing really that happened was that Las Palmas um released a press statement with a picture of the of their top that they'd be wearing that day, and it was a special kit which would be embroidered with a Spanish flag on it. And this was seen, um, or was largely seen by many as as a, as a pretty deliberate act of provocation, um, and that kind of that kind of made made a lot of people sort of sit up and taking notice and think, is this really a good idea and how is it going to unfold? Because obviously, with the images that were coming coming from the cities across Catalonia, you know, people. This this was this was a crazy situation and and this, this this sort of added a little bit of spice to that as well and probably unnecessarily so. Um, however, there wasn't really anything to indicate that anything would change with regards to the game up until about two thirty, so it was about an hour, forty five minutes before the game started, was scheduled to start, things then did unfold very quickly. Um, there was reports emerging that the game would, would be called off. Uh, and this was despite the fact that the last Palmas team bus had already arrived at the stadium, and then there was an announcement that the, the sort of traditional um, pre-match meal between the director between the directors of the clubs had been cancelled. And even though journalists had been allowed into the stadium, where stewards and sort of match officials were already gathered, the fans were being kept at the gates. The gates weren't being opened because there was no confirmation that the game was going ahead. There just there just wasn't an announcement. And then what happened was the Grada de Ani Matthew, which are the Barcelona fans who traditionally sit behind the north goal. They're kind of, so what you could say they're associated with the ultra groups. They had released a statement then to say that if the game was going to be go ahead, was going to go ahead, and they said they would they'd rather didn't. They said that in no uncertain terms they would attempt to invade the pitch and to call a halt to the proceedings. So I mean, this this is all you know. This is all going at a million miles an hour at this point. So at three forty-five, half an hour before kick-off, Barcelona released a statement to confirm that the game would be played, but it would be being played behind closed doors. So there was no fans inside the stadium, and obviously this is this is the Camp Nou. You know, it's it's a hundred and five thousand-seater stadium, and it was totally empty for this for this league clash. And obviously, that's it was just a very
1: surreal day, and that was that was sort of the next big turn in it. Mm, I mean. A complete shambles, I think it's fair to say, in terms of the game going ahead of not being rescheduled, not being rearranged. But a lot of heat... Now for the Liga president, Javier Tebas, uh, some reports that, you know, uh, this figure who has a long running dispute with Barcelona uh, not only uh, agreed to Las Palmas' request, as you mentioned there, to wear the the Spanish flags on the shirt, to have them embroidered in the kits, which, as you said, was seen as an incendiary sort of move, but also rejecting reportedly Barcelona's request to postpone the game uh, by... Saying that if they did so, not only would they automatically lose this game three 0 they'd also be fined another three points, so six points in total. Understandably, uh, not endearing himself to uh, to Catalonia here. No, no, well, well, that's that's absolutely correct. This kind of goes back,
0: as you said, to Javier Tabas, who is the um, who is the president of the league, and um, not only that, but he is actually he's openly a Real Madrid fan. And quite a lot of people think, well, maybe he shouldn't be so bad about that, but but, but he is and he has clashed sort of publicly with Barcelona uh, a number of times over the past year, 18 months. Um, He also said as well, he kind of inflamed things a little bit further in the future, What would Catalonia to separate from Spain? They, the Barcelona, Espanyol, and Girona, the three um, Catalonian clubs in the top flight, wouldn't be allowed to compete in La Liga. I'm sure we can get onto that later, but the fact the fact remains that the Barcelona and the league have been at odds here, and I actually highlighted on my own Twitter feed that this, that the decision to hold, the to, to play this match, to schedule it for the day of this referendum, it actually it really exposed a, a degree of incompetence right up to the very top level of uh, those who run the game in spain um, there's absolutely no reason why this fixture couldn't have been moved to the saturday um as it was the fixture was scheduled on the sunday in full knowledge that it would clash with the referendum because in spain the games are only decided in terms of in terms of the the time and and whether it's saturday or sunday or Friday night, Monday night, that's only decided a couple of weeks in advance. Whereas obviously in England, it's, it's a lot more long-term and, and the fixtures usually one months in advance the exact time, that's not the case in Spain. And it actually followed um, on from the previous day when there had been another issue with the league had to face was a complaint from Sevilla because they had to play Malaga uh, during the mid afternoon Saturday match. Um, this was played in what was recorded as 36 degree heat. And yeah. there was images emerged during that match. That some of the fans were struggling in the hot conditions, um, and a couple, there's more than a couple of people needed medical attention as well. So Sevilla so complained about the scheduling of that match, and Barcelona were complaining about the schedule of their own match. So, so we can sort of get an impression of just of just how poorly organised this can be in terms of the, the logistics, not just of the of the climate and the weather, but also of the very sort of real political situations that are unfolding within Spain. Uh, and following on from the game, there was two two resignations from Barcelona's board and it wouldn't be totally surprising that if more were to follow suit just, just because they, they actually went ahead and played the match behind closed doors and former president Juan Laporta, um, he said it was an abstention of their duty to play the game. Um, so and then obviously that needs to be taken with a slight pinch of salt in terms of he is he's actively undermining the current club president, um, Jose Maria to me um so there's a little bit of that going on this political political situations within barcelona the, the club itself but there's definitely a lot of unhappiness that you know that the game that the game went ahead but the fans were locked out almost and it, i mean it's easy to say this in hindsight because realistically they only had a very short timetable to decide this in and it was obviously a massive decision but made, a, a couple of people might think well maybe you should have run the risk of making a stand making a statement and and just cancelling the game altogether and maybe there was a chance that La Liga might have backed down and maybe to a degree of common sense would have been used but as we can see, that's not always the case in Spain.
1: Mm, we also saw uh, Gerard Pique come out after the game giving a, a somewhat emotional post-match interview to the press uh, mentioning that he would be willing to, to step down from the Spanish national team in light of the events over the weekend and of course himself uh, casting his own vote earlier in the day.
0: Yeah, and again this, this PK is he'd actually tweeted on Thursday. Um he said that, you know, people should go out and express themselves peacefully, to sing loud and strong. He also he ended his tweet with the hashtag uh meaning we will vote. So again he was very much positioning himself um clearly in, the, in terms of the referendum, very much supporting the fact that it should go ahead and on Sunday He's one of the few players, um, Carlos Puyol, who's obviously retired now, he was very prominent Barcelona defender, Piquet kind of succeeded. And Sergio Roberto as well, they uploaded photos of themselves going to vote. And then I, I was PK that, that said as well that I've already voted together, we are unstoppable, defending democracy. So again, this this is this is quite a political statement, but it it's more it's more seen as the, the, you need to get the differential between actually supporting independence and supporting the vote for independence. And that's very much how PK what But then after the game it actually took another another twist when he um, he went through the, the kind of mixed zone of journalists after the game and and as per usual really he, he, he sort of fronted up and and went over to speak to them. and he was clearly very emotional and he said look I am Catalan I feel Catalan people can vote yes they can vote no or they can abstain but like we we just want to vote but then he went he, he went on to say this was actually my worst experience as as a player. And he, he really, he, he really was emotional about this. He, it was it was clear that this was very hard for him, not just the interview itself, but but the day and the match and the circumstances of which it all unfolded. And then he was he, he was asked again about his future with the national team with with Spain, and he, he pretty much said, look, if the coach or if the federation itself thinks that I'm a problem or a disturbance in the national team, I would have no qualms stepping aside. And leaving them before um the world cup and um, next year now he's already because he already said he'll be retiring from international football after the world cup but it's almost again i, th- I think that was a very deliberate comment to say well look if this is going to be a problem that i feel catalan and that i think that there should be a vote here then i will happily step aside so he's almost taking the initiative and sort of putting the pressure back on you know taking the pressure away from himself and reverting it back to the Spanish Federation, be like, well, if 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 you want to drop me from the squad, drop me from the squad, just just do it, sort of thing. So, I, th- I think I think that was that was very interesting in terms of that. And then also uh, on Sunday night, uh, Pep Guardiola, um, obviously you know hugely associated with Barcelona as a player and coach manager, um, uh, now at Man City, and he said actually it was very interesting what he said. He said that he wouldn't have played the Barcelona Las Palmas fixture at all. He also said that if, if the game was to have gone ahead, it had to have been in front of the fans. And he said, well, yes, there might have been consequences from that, but that's that's what comes with it. The fans should have been allowed in. He also went on to say that like there was over 700 people injured. These people just went to cast a vote. You know, they, they weren't doing anything criminal. And he also called into question the government of Mariano who who's come in for a lot of criticism from both both sides of the political spectrum of how he's handled this. So he, he was very interested. He also said that like you can agree or disagree with PK, but either way, he's, he's very brave for fronting up and, and for making these comments. So, he, again, going back from the club statement and the chance of the fans, and then you had the comments of PK and of Guardiola. I mean, and the, these are obviously massive, massive figureheads coming out and saying, you know, coming out with their own opinions in this. So, it, it, again, it's something that's gathered momentum. And as we can see, Barcelona as a club,
1: whether they like it or not, are right at the centre of this. Mm, obviously, uh, there's still fallout to come. There's no resolution as of yet. Speaking on Monday at the time of recording, uh, I mean, the Catalan leaders, the Catalan officials say that the region has won the right to statehood following uh, the contentious referendum, um, but we're yet to see uh, what outcome comes from that. I mean... At the moment, though, uh, it's obviously a very divisive issue, uh, which, as I said at the top, has resulted in essentially a full-blown constitutional crisis. But if the region did eventually become independent, what could that mean for FC Barcelona? Would they even be allowed to compete in La Liga?
0: yeah it's it's one of those it's one of those issues that, that, that there's no clear answer to as things stand obviously it's it's a theoretical it's a theoretical point that the would become independent but then yes of, of course what what would happen to the teams and as i stated earlier uh, la liga's president javier tabast he, he came out and said like there's, there's, there's there, that will not happen if, if those if the Catalan clubs would not be readmitted into the Spanish League structure. Um, he said that the law is stated as such and that would be there was absolutely no guarantee whatsoever of that happening. And then again Catalonia's Minister of Sport and um, came out with an interview over the weekend and he said if if this region becomes independent, it's it's the great unknown for these clubs because nobody knows. Yeah he, he actually did go on and say though there's a chance they could be admitted to any league, to Italy, to France, even to England. Now like, obviously he was he was using this to, to make the point that nobody knew what what would happen, but Barcelona themselves, their family, of the opinion that like no, there's we we will be staying in La Liga. We're, we're not going to be changing leagues, and regardless of what happens with independence because essentially they wouldn't be breaching any rules, and they would point they pointed to the fact as well that there's a number of Andorran clubs that are in the Spanish football pyramid. And you can you can look at the other examples such as Monaco playing in the French league and obviously in England as well. There's a number of Welsh teams in the English football league structure, which is obviously goes back to to a different era and time period of, the, of those clubs being allowed in. But if that if that's the case in the modern day, well, why can't it be the case of Barcelona, Espanol and Girona? There's so there's there's real confidence from the club that regardless they will be playing in the Spanish, in the Spanish league in future. And and of course, it's, it's the fact as well, the Barcelona is clearly such a massive part of La Liga in terms of attendances, in terms of the money and advertising the revenue they bring in there. I think Barcelona need La Liga, but La Liga needs Barcelona even more. So I, I would personally think that, that there would be a, continuity
1: of, of, of the current situation mm, well, It remains to be seen what indeed does happen but for now Colin thanks so much for coming back on the front free. where can the listeners find more of your work um, well, As I said I'm Deputy Editor of the Football España website and also
0: to keep to keep track of all of my work and it, which again focuses mainly on Spanish football you can also find my personal Twitter account which is at Miller under slash so that's M-I-L-L-A-R under slash Colin
2: Really interesting stuff uh, on the front three podcasts. Uh, stay, stay tuned for more of that. There are going to be more bonus podcasts. And of course, uh, that's going to be an evolving issue in the coming weeks. Um, there is also a lot more to come in terms of Premier League analysis. Chris, on the weekend, it was your, voice, your boys versus my boys. Uh, Newcastle United and Rafa Benitez hosted Liverpool. Uh, a Liverpool team who needed something big from this game and didn't put in the performance, which I think a lot of Liverpool fans were hoping for. Um, and Rafa Benitez even tabled the idea that his Newcastle team should slash could have won this game
4: um, I think I think from the from the perspective of the Liverpool goal it is brilliance from Coutinho but I did see a number of people talk about the blafoidness of Rob Elliott at the same time so there's part of me one is, you know, is that savable? Is that stoppable? Um, and then at the other end, you know, you have that DR chance, you have that uh, moment. I just think that this is one of those games where you'll convince yourself that possession means dominance. And I think Liverpool had the chances to win. That's the thing. The, the Sturridge one-on-one is, is a, a game-changing moment in, in my eyes. I think once that, and then you will maybe also look at that corner routine in the first half. Once they don't go in, it's, it's almost like mental encouragement for the opposition to think, hang on, you know, maybe Fortune, this, this massive intangible, is on our side today. So I think Newcastle restricted a big team to f- to few really great opportunities. And I mean, even the goal is not a, a great chance, if you think about it. It's just a moment of brilliance from, from Coutinho. Um, and I think they can take a lot of positive from that as well, because the, the previous big test they had against Spurs was ruined by Shelby's red card, which made it impossible to gauge kind of how good or bad they were. Um, But I think, yeah, the fact, even that they've just got 10 points at this stage in the season, when I think last time it took them until December to reach that on McLaren, that's a really strong foundation to go into the international break and and plan for the next set of games. And I think it's it's why the point that I made before, had they gone out and been crushed 4-0, then people start to ask different questions about them. Then a team that maybe you know managed
2: to, to snatch that draw by being defensive they only found themselves of course two points behind Liverpool Liverpool who um, looked out of a lot of ideas Nico uh, and again without sort of Coutinho stepping up it didn't look like they created um, enough great chances I, we, we spoke at one point about Liverpool having a good XG expected goals uh, in a lot of games Um, But again, they they don't have the goals to sort of match that at this point. So uh, Rafa Benitez again uh, and Newcastle limiting what Liverpool had. But Liverpool in many ways, Nico, limiting themselves with, you know, uh, trying to bookend three people in when actually maybe Firmino would have been more fitting.
3: Yeah, and I think we were talking a little bit about the storage issue pre-podcast, but what I would also say is I I didn't catch all of this game. I I caught the later bits, Um, but I just find it so frustrating from a perspective that I appreciate Klopp and I appreciate what he's done to Liverpool, is that I think he's maybe caught in a little bit of a, a difficult position in his career because I think he's so vehemently obsessed with breaking breaking teams down in the way that he wants to that he never takes the opportunity to do so in different ways and i guess but more specifically i mean that i never see liverpool try to break teams down sort of in a more vertical fashion it's always you know let's stretch them horizontally and then if that doesn't work and players aren't being pulled out pulled out far enough or players aren't being dragged around by our off-ball movement which i think could improve as well then you usually see joel matip or or someone dribble into the center midfield try to draw someone and they and they try to try to Uh, create a a quick passing um, sequence and and enjoy some sort of success through that. But there was so many times where the ball went back and Newcastle looked to to come onto them at least for a quick moment in the later stages of the game that I think they can sort of take those opportunities and and specifically me watching um, Napoli pretty consistently. You know, they take those opportunities to break down more defensive teams vertically and play out of sort of light pressure, especially the sort of unorganized pressure that a team like Newcastle would provide. And use that to to create more space in the final third. But they let the ball go out. They let the ball sort of uh, go back to the goalkeeper and and not be quick in possession. And they sort of squander those those maybe less apparent opportunities. So, like I said, my intention to criticize Klopp is not to say, you know, he doesn't belong at Liverpool or anything like that because I think he does. And he's done great things for the club thus far. It's just that this further evolution... Into his managerial style needs to progress further in trying to break teams down in different ways, nice, and then yeah. trying to game manage situations so that you know they don't end up with with these draws and losses that they could that could be wins, um, uh, and uh, that yeah. they ultimately need to, to to compete a little bit better.
2: And also, changing personnel in a, in in a similar formation does not mean a change of game plan, even though it sort of does. It doesn't mean the change yeah, of no, game you plan you spoke that maybe you're about,
3: yeah, I know you, sp- you spoke about uh, your maybe lack of, of affinity for Daniel Sturridge anymore. I mean, do you think that that was the right move? Because the idea for me was that, you know, they've off- over the past few games, we talked about the expected goals and Liverpool have had a pretty decent expected goal rating and a pretty consistent one. They've basically created around 2.0 expected goals uh, over the past you know, six or seven games, which is pretty decent. And that never really equates to a whole goal. It's not like they should be scoring two goals a go- game necessarily, but they're creating enough chances for that rating to be achieved, which is a pretty good one. And so, like I said, for me, the chances haven't necessarily been finished as well as uh, one might have hoped. So the idea for me was putting Surge in there, someone who's an incredibly gifted finisher, would help that you thought differently I mean do you he's, think you he, I, I agree he's, he's
2: well he's incredibly gifted but um we haven't seen that gift in quite some time uh on a consistent basis and I understand he's been injured I understand I you know, I don't necessarily even blame them for that but I don't think just putting storage there and expecting something different to happen especially in the way that Liverpool played um it's particularly helpful because storage. There were times where a few Liverpool players hung to the ball for too long. They looked to isolate the wrong players in the wrong areas, whereas they. So what? It, so what are isolated. the differences
3: in play? What are the differences in play that you believe uh, differentiate from Firmino to storage for, for Liverpool?
2: I think Firmino is definitely in in the way that Firmino drops deeper and can combine with a Coutinho or can da- combine with a Sallow or a Mane or make space for those guys is definitely uh, much more positive. Uh, in terms of getting closer to the center of the goal um, and then I think if you watch Sturridge sometimes you'll just think pass it there and it won't it won't happen and maybe that's because of the game plan that he's being laid out in and maybe you know he's being told cut in and you know do this maybe try and create a shot but then when you can't create the shot and you keep doing that in the same way that we already sort of referenced with Coutinho trying to create that cut in shoot and I understand he did that once and that was fantastic but it was an incredible strike and you can't sort of do that on a consistent basis in every game, because some people, especially the better quality defensive teams are going to keep shutting you down. Um, So I I just, I think again, it it just makes Liverpool look more one dimensional than offering a lot more. And I'd rather see Firmino on the pitch, at least sort of freestyling and, you know, trying a few different ways to unlock a team than watching frustratedly while, while we sort of see a Liverpool crowd get on Sturridge's back or try not to get on Sturridge's back when the frustration builds up.
3: Very fair. I think that's a good analysis of that. Um,
2: but yeah, there's, there's a lot uh, that there, there's a lot of people speaking about Klopp as if he only has one way of playing, one way of thinking. Uh, and also as if in the past he hasn't created uh the positive scenarios at clubs or overcome uh, adversity. Uh, And again, I think that's somewhat of the English exceptionalism that Nico sometimes references. Uh, We probably should also reference Joe Hart at some point who also uh, said, and I actually think Joe Hart's been misquoted here, uh, said he didn't think he got a fair, uh, he didn't think it would be a fair battle between him and Pep Guardiola. And I get what he's saying by that. Um, Because obviously when Pep let him go, It was Pep's decision. I think a lot of people have taken the headline of uh, Joe Hart saying he didn't think he would have a fair battle as him, maybe with sour grapes, sort of saying, well, you know, I never got the chance to prove myself. He does caveat Mm -hmm. that with then saying, um, I understand why I didn't get that fair
3: uh, side. He said that you feel like that's that's what you, you feel like that's what he was saying.
2: Well, reading the full quote, he then after that says, I understand that's life. That's football. Uh, and there was only going to be one winner in those scenarios. And that's the man that Man City had battled hard to get. And it sounded like he understood that there was there were wider forces at play there.
3: I think he, I, I think looking at those quotes, I think he, in saying that, I think he understands, he's saying that he understands why the decision was made. But at the same time, I think he's still complaining about the fact that he feels like it wasn't necessarily a fair battle between him and the manager. And it's there that I would sort of have to disagree. And I, and I say that because... I think obviously we didn't see Joe Hart feature too much under Pep Guardiola before he was sent off, or sent out on loan and then subsequently sold to West Ham or whatever deal that they they have come to. But at the same time, that isn't a I don't think that's necessarily a valid argument because we've seen players that haven't featured much under Pep Guardiola earn a place in the squad, earn a place on the team sheet, earn a place sort of in the in the squad that has been announced for the Champions League or, or the Premier League. Very different um, for a goalkeeper though, isn't it? Yeah, certainly, but they've they've earned those opportunities through training. Uh, Elias King Mangala is part of this year's plans. All of a sudden, supposedly be, or reportedly, because he did very well in training. Um, you know, there Fabian Delph. He he hasn't featured much over the past year or so, and people thought he was sort of out of the plans. But he has changed that because of supposedly of what he's done in training and the, and the options that he's shown him in training. I think ultimately. It is a skill set that Joe Hart did not possess that's not necessarily his fault because maybe he grew up in an environment and, and was coached in an environment where that was never uh, emphasized. But you, I don't think you can necessarily complain that it wasn't a fair battle because he was given the opportunity a whole year at Torino to maybe further his ability in that department, and it wasn't uh, good. No,
2: that's that's definitely I, – I wouldn't say that's exactly true. I mean, you, again, you said it's not a fair battle because he's he's not he's not necessarily playing at an elite club at that point, is he?
3: and he's also yeah, that he still has a club he had it. so at Torino he had um there was statistics that came out that he was i think it was he was attempting um to do that in the early stages he had the most uh, outfield passes of any goalkeeper, uh, most short passes. So he was definitely trying, but I think ultimately it came down to a situation where he didn't, he doesn't possess the ability to to play out from the back. And not only that, it's not just about, I've, I've talked about this several times, you know, like Wayne Rooney has the technical ability to send a ball 60 yards, but he doesn't have Tony Cruz's tactical understanding of when to send that ball. Um, and that's the big difference, is that Joe Hart probably technically has the ability to play short passes, but he doesn't have Aderson or Claudio Bravo's footballing intelligence or, or understanding of, of when to do those things that those two players do. And that's ultimately why he he isn't part of the team anymore.
2: Yeah. Uh, Again, I think uh, Joe Hart can say something is maybe not fair uh, in the way that he would like it to be, but also say he he sees it as uh, an understanding that it felt fair from Man City's side, because obviously he was also uh, a top goalkeeper there for a number of years. Um, Let's move on from that. I think there are obviously other things to say about Joe Hart and obviously his his beating being beaten at your near post a number of times is definitely one of those, or to your left a number of times is one of those problems. Uh, Bigger problems, of course, Chris. Chris, are you even still there? Yep. Great. You are on your way to wrestling though right now, so I understand if you need to leave at some point. Um, Everton won. uh, Sorry, Everton Hill, Burnley won. I read that one wrong because I assumed. uh, Hendrick Strike... Uh, And it puts pressure on Koeman at this point, Chris, at least from a media perspective and probably from a club perspective, because uh, like Dave was saying, and like a number of other people have been saying for a while, he was great at Southampton. Um, What next? You know, he was, you know, now this is his team and they're not doing great.
4: Yeah, it it took him a year to to kind of get things uh, going at Southampton. and, and the, the thing with this Everton team is I, I appreciate what he's saying about uh, you know, the spending and, and all of that kind of stuff. And this is a team, I think, fairly in transition. The important, I think, caveat to, to all of that is they're just not playing well. Um, you can talk about you know, giving time and, and adapting and things like that, but that doesn't change the fact that they're a side that, for me, aren't performing even at their base level. Um, they were undone by a Burnley side that are a different proposition away from home than last year I think they're more organised which sounds impossible for a Burnley side but I think they make better decisions and they make importantly better decisions in an attacking sense in terms of when to commit and when to hold off um, but but there's something about this, this Everton spending that to me seems so haphazard because you have I would say three or four players that can all play the same position that are now trying to be shoehorned into the side. Um, For me, it started well with Sandro in the summer, but then, you know, you're playing Sigurdsson out wide. um, You've not got a huge amount of pace in that team, I would argue. And and when you're so restricted in your ability to change gears like that, you're always going to be fairly easy to defend against and very reliant on moments of brilliance from either a career or a finisher. And I think Everton have been in short supply of both this season. Mm.
2: Uh, on the converse of that, Burnley, eh? Nico? Burnley.
3: Yeah, I thought they were excellent. And they, and they impounced on, on everything that maybe Everton aren't able to do. And specifically, a uh, uh, Paul Riley, who's a great data analyst, um, was speaking about some of the things that he's noticed recently, um, and that is that Kuman is sort of putting the the pressure of everton playmaking and sort of moving the ball in the center of the pitch on Idris Agui who may be a, fa- a fantastic player in a defensive sense and obviously he's shown that to some extent both last year and the year before at SM Villa um, but I think in, in sort of his passing ability and way of progressing the play he is an, an exceptionally talented player and those sort of responsibilities should be designated to other players and maybe it's you know his it's Kuman's responsibility and ultimately his decision to decide what players do what and he, maybe he see something in in Ige that I don't but it's obvious given the recent results that it's something that probably isn't working and I think Burnley enacted a game plan that we always knew that they were going to and ultimately were successful because of the ineptitude of a manager that was supposedly extremely ambitious during the summer just kind of goes to show that it doesn't really matter about ambitions but sort of how you use the players given to you
2: realistic ambitions know your place um oh. I've got to go, unfortunately, chaps. Uh <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, bye. Good Thanks, guy. Chris. Great guy. Uh Nico, you and I can finish off together. It would be lovely. Uh let's go on to uh, Arsenal and their great result. Well, I'll say great result. A lot of people talk about them stumbling over the line um and the number of games. You get the feeling there's a very fine line between Arsenal and Liverpool right now, don't you, Nico? Where um uh, and, and let me let me just clarify here. Uh, Arsenal are getting some great results, uh, relying on a few uh, key performances within the team to drag them to those results.
3: Yeah, and I think the the fine line that you speak of between Arsenal and Liverpool is is a really good one to maybe follow throughout the year. And in saying that, I think as you mentioned, Arsenal are getting some great results on the back of maybe some more individual individualistic performances and Liverpool are suffering from some bad performances, but ultimately, or not bad performances, but bad results, uh, but not bad performances. And I think it's actually a really interesting storyline if maybe we, this is sort of like a, a public test um, for expected goals, because Klopp believes in his press conferences, as, as, as we've talked about before, um, that, you know, they're in a good... They're in a good way, as he puts that, and that they are playing well. And that these sort of things, the type of goals that they're conceding, they're, they're sort of one-offs and they're situations that aren't going to repeat themselves. But after a couple of weeks of maybe, uh, of maybe them repeating themselves, people are not not going along with that storyline. But I think at the end of the day, this, this sort of thing will, will even out and Liverpool will, will come good, whereas Arsenal are a different situation. They didn't stumble over the line in this game against Brighton, but... There were situations in this game where you can see the apparent fallacies in sort of the structure of their formation. The the worst part of the 3-4-3, if not accounted for properly, is the fact that there can be one, possibly only two central midfielders really not protecting that back line because that's such a cliche statement that isn't true. Um, but, but you know, only there to to... to to limit the the amount of exposure that the center backs have in, in being pulled out or the defenders have. Um, and against Brighton, if that's blatantly apparent in, in some situations, I think then that is going to be readily exposable by teams that are much better than Brighton. So they didn't stumble over the line and it was a decent performance from a lot of their players. But I think ultimately... As I've talked about, there's so much promise with this Arsenal structure in the 3-4-3 in the sense that if you play a Lacazette and a Wobbe and a Welbeck or so any any sort of combination of those three players, then you have the ability to be dynamic. Those players can drop into midfield in a defensive sense and help out with the numbers there and not allow them to be overrun, and then they can, they can go forward and be high-pressing entities. And with the energy that those players have, then it's a very promising formation, but at the same time... It, it's sort of something that hangs in the balance. You know, you have an exposable formation that, if certain players aren't doing doing their jobs and the jobs that should go to them in that structure, then it can it can very easily go go sour, and, and that true. will happen for Arsenal.
2: I mean, that is true. Although there is also the converse of that that apparently a lot of people uh, have acknowledged that Arsenal have changed some of their system, or at least elements of their system, uh, within what's going on to. Improve uh, the overall uh, side, and, and like that said, it. I think a couple of other uh, players have spoken about changing and um, and training uh, harder, better, um, and differently with Wenger to change the way that they defend. Um, and in the early weeks, I think we could see elements of that working, um, and we've seen it more recently. But then, um, I mean, I, you know, I guess there are also results against Liverpool where it's very difficult for them to explain that. So, uh, like you say, Nico, it, it will be exposed at some point, but then some of these systems um, in the Premier League are open to that sort of exposure. I guess, the yeah, the, the problem with that is uh, if you don't change when you need to change, uh, sort of, you know, when you play uh, Liverpool, why do Arsenal get exposed specifically against Liverpool so often? Why do Liverpool get exposed against Arsenal so often? Why haven't they changed? Why haven't they addressed those problems? Is it because they, they don't see the long term or the, the, the benefits of doing that uh, and you know you can lose one game if you play 37 others great or is it because they, they actually don't have the ability to do that or don't know yet how to solve those very problems uh, let us know uh, with your replies um, Nico we're gonna finish off uh, with well where else can we finish uh, there, there were some other uh, there were some other games uh, all over Europe going on uh, I'd, I'd love to speak a little uh, PSG um, It looks good I mean they, they won By a massive margin Was it 6-1 uh, Just the other day Great Neymar goal uh, Great Draxler goal 6-2 uh, 6-2 uh, Sorry uh, Great Neymar goal Great Draxler goal
3: The Draxler um, goal was insane Insane Incredible technique Outside of the foot volley I mean Doesn't get better than that
2: That's That's true uh, is it, again, sort of going back to the same cliches about PSG? I, I guess the, the the issue is when we say, well, there are beating Guy, you know, it's only Liga, is what some people say. And they say, well, yeah, they are replicating this I, in the Champions I, League. I struggle
3: with that. I, I struggle, I really struggle with with kind of saying that because I know, you know, the, the, the praisers of the Premier League will come along and say, oh, you know, it's only uh, Gouin Camp and, and Bordeaux and, and some of these lesser sides. But, I mean, it, it's, it's not like... The Premier League is of a higher quality, yes, to some extent, top to bottom. There are more teams competing for the title and maybe European positions than in any other league. That's the reality of the situation. But... Mocking the the quality of some of these sides that PSG are destroying is not so much to say about the quality of them, but more to, to suggest – it has more to suggest about the quality of PSG. I mean, you have Kylian Mbappe, Neymar, and Cavani with options off the bench like Julian Draxler and Lucas Mora I mean – that's an incredibly gifted group of players that they're enjoying their football. And that's the most important thing here is that it's not just, and obviously their goals from a professional standpoint will stem from the fact of whether they win trophies or not, but it's kind of the same thing with Napoli in the sense that the, the brilliant thing about PSG is that they're bringing attention to the, to the French league and not in the same way that Napoli and Roma and Juventus to some extent are bringing attention to, uh, to the to the Italian league by playing some brilliant football, and I that's agree. ultimately I agree. What well, the team.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree to some extent. You would also say though that uh, you know, uh, with that becoming more ubiquitous or more people playing great football, I understand actually no one else is really playing the kind of football that PSG are playing because it does look sort of uh, fantastical at sometimes. But uh, with that, they are. I mean, really, uh, I think what a lot of people maybe sort of surface. Uh, fans or people who just watch the highlights like me of PSG and Liga really you could change um a lot of those teams out one for another for people who are just browsing through um you know highlights unless you're invested in Liga which the likelihood is you'll be invested in PSG if you if you're not actually from that country um then there's sort of an issue there because actually it's not the same kind of eyes it's not the same kind of interest it's the same as sort of speaking about Celtic or Rangers within the Scottish League it's you know, there's having those mammoths, mammoth teams in there, you know, we talk about the trickle-down effect, we talk about all these things. I'd be interested to see how that actually works. Um, And also, I guess, if you have difficult games week in, week out, like a lot of people in the Premier League would claim, or maybe even in Serie A, maybe in Bundesliga as well, there is a sort of fatigue which builds up, which maybe some people would argue PSG will not build up because they are or at least it seems so effortlessly walking these games but there could also be a Michael Jordan effect there these guys are so great that maybe they make it look so easy they still have to work very hard um, to reach that level you know it's not necessarily as effortless as they uh, as we might make out even though it might look that way Um, and again they are replicating it in the Champions League even if it is against the Bayern Munich team who maybe didn't look uh, at their best at that point Um, yeah I mean there's still fantastic goals Go, go see those in the highlights, if you can. It's the international break now. We'll still be around for that. Uh, We'll be covering the Wembley Cup next weekend. Uh, Nico, will you be watching the Wembley Cup?
3: What is the Wembley Cup? Great. Uh,
2: You know who Spencer, you know who Spencer FC is. You know who the F2 are. Nico, come on.
3: I know who those guys are. I just don't know. I don't know. I know what, okay. I know that the Wembley Cup is taking place. I know that you and Brian are a part of it. Uh, I just don't know what it is. Sure. Wembley Cup
2: uh, is a YouTube event at Wembley where uh, many, many children and their parents buy a lot of tickets and a lot of people go along and you can tune in online uh, to see the Wembley Cup next Saturday. I think it's two, from 2 p.m. onwards, I think it is, uh, on YouTube. If you just go type in the Wembley Cup, I think it's on Spencer FC's channel. It might be on EE as well. Uh, go and take a look. There's some ex-football uh, players, or as we call them, legends. Um <laughs> and you know there's there's a lot of interesting football to be seen and it's also maybe to see the level of some of these players uh, there are some fantastic players in both teams
3: will you and be I, playing
2: i won't be playing i'll be commentating nico
3: you'll be commentating okay well, I, cool. I, of course I'm every,
2: everyone's dream of course and you can, it's can donate play. it's a charity thing right it, uh there is charity yeah there's definitely charity involved um and cool. you can yeah you can go and you can go uh, and buy obviously and buy a ticket if, if you're not um, if you're in the UK and then obviously you can also watch online and get involved there I'll be there um, Brian the True Geordie will be there I think Adam Bolt will be there as well I don't think Dave will um, but there's a lot of a lot of good stuff to come so uh, go go do that next weekend obviously it's also the international break so you can go and watch a lot of international football we won't dip out at that point point. Um, and uh, during the Thursday podcast we will answer all your questions it's been good to have you guys and we'll see you again real soon right here, Nico, on TF3, where uh, people can see you, Dave, Boltwood, Chris. If people want to go find you, where can they find you?
3: They can find me uh, at Nico underscore O'Morales. Uh, also, watch this space. We might be uh, re, re-upping re the, the old YouTube channel, so so watch that. You know? Yeah, we, we certainly will.
2: be lovely. Uh, anyway, uh, we will see you again soon here, uh, where we will be talking more football. We'll be talking a lot more stuff. There's a lot of exciting stuff to come up, uh, including TF3 and a number of other bodies around the world. Um, let us know your thoughts on the podcast, uh, and we look forward to talking to you on Thursday. Don't forget to put your questions in the hashtag I am the whole for that podcast, and we'll see you again real soon right here on TF3.